0: Assalamu <laughs> alaikum <inaudible> uh brothers and sisters uh Rabbil alamin As-salatu ala rasulil karim amma ba can i just uh, get some response in the chat um, can you guys see uh, the presentation and can you see me um, how's the uh, how is it looking if someone can respond uh, is the sound fine everything okay okay alhamdulillah okay jazakumullahu okay. khair um, okay, so uh, let's make a start. Inshallah. Um, uh, myself, uh, I'm Azad Ali. For those of you who don't know, I'm the community uh, director uh, for Cage. Um, we have also uh, Sister Mariam Hussein, who's uh, the brother of Khubeib uh, Hussein, uh, one of the Birmingham Four, who uh, we strongly believe has, was unjustly uh, uh, imprisoned, and uh, she will be recounting the story of her brother and what took place. And believe me, brothers and sisters, this will be an eye-opener for you all. And then we will have uh, Brother Mwazenbeg, um, who will uh, conclude uh, with a presentation. And after that, uh, we will do a short Q&A, inshallah. We're aiming uh, for the program to last around an hour and a half tops, um, but we'll do our best to um, accommodate any questions. Uh, what, what i'd like to say is don't use the chat function for any questions if you do have questions and you don't uh, uh can you just uh, type it in the q a if you use that function um okay so um as some of you may uh, be aware we uh, did a pre-launch of our report uh, 20 years of terror laws um and uh, and, and we, what we're titling this event is the rise of islamophobia and um what I wanted to kind of uh, go through is give you the key findings of that report um, and uh, w- w- while I'm uh, talking uh, if there's any questions you have you can put it in the qu- uh, Q&A and then I'll look at it after the presentation inshallah so uh, I'll make a start um, and just for your information we are recording this uh, just so that we can use it in future okay so the first thing is uh, many of you Uh, May be aware or may not be aware, the Terrorism Act 2000, uh, we uh, kind of abbreviated it to TACT, Uh, many people refer it to that, it was introduced in Parliament uh, in December 1999 and passed into law July 20th, uh, 2000, so it's been 20 years uh, since uh, it's been passed into law. And essentially, what it did is it took uh, many other uh, terrorism uh, laws, uh, in particular, the 1974 Prevention of Terrorism Acts uh, legislation, and it kind of uh, amalgamated and consolidated it and added uh, new powers as well, such as prescription of designated uh, terrorist groups. Um, And it was the first uh, in over a dozen of uh, counterterrorism CT laws, as as we uh, term it, introduced since 2000. And making it, uh, you know, building Britain's uh, CT apparatus into one of the most expansive counterterror uh, regime in history, and successive laws have resulted in near limitless policing uh, apparatus and a two-tier justice system, which I'll go into a little bit more, inshallah. Uh, fundamentally, this is undermining uh, the democratic governance uh, as we see it, and and many of you will be aware through uh, things like Prevent and Schedule Seven as well of how it's impacting Muslims. Okay, so just to break it down, what does this uh, legislation include? Um, So part one gives you a definition of uh, terrorism. Part two, it talks about prescription and banning of organizations. So many of you will know like groups like Al-Muhajirun were banned um, and and obviously uh, far-right groups and others as well. Um, And it kind of uh, outlined a process as well as a prescription related offences. So if you belong to uh, groups that were banned and they were, th- these became offences and uh, it kind of translated in jail time. Part three um, kind of looks at terrorist property funding and resources and part four uh, invest- investigations of terror offences as pres- prescribed organisations um, and then part six powers of stop and search and arrest. Uh, one of those powers has been uh, uh, kind of removed since then um part six uh, uh, kind of uh, there, there's a there's, uh, uh, you know a few other kind of terror offenses that comes into it and then uh, part seven uh, the use of uh, this terrorism act in Northern Ireland uh, it wasn't part of that before so they've kind of done that and then there was just some general provisions okay so, why uh, are we saying that this uh, legislation was the bedrock or the foundation of bringing in structural uh, uh, policies and laws that we believe is Islam are, are Islamophobic? Um, and and we'll, we'll kind of go through some of that. The first thing is it created a two-tier justice system. Uh, it eroded the uh, rule of law and uh, it hollowed out the criminal justice system and f- flipped the burden of proof on its head. Uh, and many of you brothers uh, and sisters will, uh, whether jokingly or not, you say, you know, things like innocent until proven Muslim, uh, you know, so we kind of even joke, on, joke about it because we see this, we've seen this so much that it's become a norm that, you know, if a Muslim person uh, gets arrested for something, they're guilty already, okay, and if it's a non-Muslim, uh, then they're innocent, uh, and, and so that, that's why, you know, the term was coined, innocent until proven uh, Muslim. Uh, and the CT laws, uh, essentially what they do is lower the burden of proof required for prosecution. Uh, and, 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 and this is kind of making it easier for the prosecution, the government uh, and the justice system just to prosecute uh, people on things like reckless behavior, for example, without actually having any evidence or proof of intention okay, that you know, they wanted to carry out any acts. So it could be just someone was uh, browsing something just because they were curious, but that, that became uh, an offence and the burden proof so low, even though they had no intention of any terrorism uh, offences, they were still prosecuted. Um, the next thing is perhaps one of the most uh, damning things that has come in uh, you know, in terms of legislation in this country. And the, these are secret courts, CIA courts, uh, secret evidence and blind prosecutions. And it, you know, when it was introduced at that time, I don't know if any of you will remember, um, it was said that you know these were to try the worst of the worst cases and it was very sensitive and national interest, et cetera, et cetera. But now what we see is that um, this secret evidence and site courts are being used in things like employment tribunals or planning inquiries and family courts. Some of you will recall uh, a few years back, we launched a report about how uh, prevent is trying to take away children from their mothers and part of that uh, kind of report it exposes how secret evidences uh, were being used so even in family courts secret evidence is being used and it basically what has done is like effectively created a two-tier uh, justice system that has been used primarily against Muslims uh, before it got expanded uh, any further as, as many of you will know um, the next thing is about pre-crime and uh, political policing uh, tact has significantly widened the scope of pre-crime offenses CT is future policing rather than crime prevention so it's it's almost like you know they're, they're they're kind of policing your mind your thoughts and everything else and what's happened is you know the way the police kind of operate is like you know they, they use the largest power, the power that gives them the most uh, kind of reach, uh, and and it's like a dragnet type of policing. So they just cast the net as wide as possible and draw it in, and then whatever they can find, uh, that they do that, which impinges on a citizen and and the rights of a citizen. Most CT prosecutions are for offenses like possession of banned material. Uh, TACT has created a framework to enable the targeting, surveillance and disruption of political movements in the broader sense. So it's, you know, uh, a lot of the times we kind of would understand terrorism legislation to do with violence. But uh, that's not what we're seeing. The evidence is not showing that the evidence is showing is that it's being used for other things, people's ideas, uh, people's beliefs, people's kind of uh, uh, ability to raise issues to do with uh, injustices uh, across the world. And the prescription regime uh, which is used uh, as a tool of foreign policy so to limit uh, you know people's concerns about you know what's taking place abroad or to help uh, things uh, that are taking place abroad. So basically it allows the British government to ban groups that are in opposition to allied uh, governments abroad so for example Israel, Sri Lanka or Turkey um, and and so this is a way of uh, controlling political, uh, dissent for oppressions that are taking place in other countries, if you like. Um, the next kind of big uh, issue that we kind of raised in our report is about racism and discrimination. The CT uh, has legitimized racial profiling. Many of you, if you've been following uh, policing, you would know that this is something that exists, but it's kind of gone uh, even further with Schedule 7, where basically, you know, no, uh, you know, there's no reasonable uh, suspicion or reasonable cause to uh, stop someone. It is being used in a blanket way, and, and, and many of you have seen, would have seen many of our reports and videos about it. Um, there's a quote from Kevin Maxwell, who said, basically, police treat certain ethnic, religious or national groups as inherently suspect, and that you will get some officers who will target on the basis of race, and the flight the individuals just come from because that's the way he or she is wired so it's like you know the innate uh, discriminatory nature of people is being allowed to play out and it's legislated you know that they, they, they feel uh empowered to do so because there's a legislation that allows them to do do that and one of those uh, uh powers was the section 44 stop and search where basically there was no Uh, need for any uh, reasonable uh, suspicion or doubt or anything you know the police officer can stop you without any cause and you have to comply so during observations of London neighbourhood policing teams an officer who regularly conducted section 444 stops told me that who to stop was subject to interpretation and that officers tend to look out for Asians, obviously. So it's like this is from the horse's mouth. Okay, the police is saying, you know, look out for Asians, obviously. Why? Because that's that connection that the media is making with terrorism to Asians uh, uh, vis-a-vis kind of Muslims, if you like um the racism and discrimination continue. so racism uh and discrimination are both a product of tax ct laws and the means through which they are legitimized as i just said earlier tact and ct laws emerged in the context of structural xenophobia and islamophobia and cemented these policies so you know you, you probably heard uh, tony blair say the rules of the game change uh muscular liberalism and you know the evil ideology, you know Islam and everything else. so these kind of things, uh, ideas, if you like, uh, have kind of uh, been cemented through the use of counterterrorism legislation. Uh, implementation of Tax CT has therefore uh, inevitably uh, been racist and discriminatory. Uh, it's, a, it's a feature. it's not a bug. Basically, that's you know, systematic, it's not a one-off thing. Continuing, um, the way that that extremist terrorist prisoners is mobilized politically with the idea of prisons are breeding grounds for terror has also justified the expansion of the prison regime and validated discriminatory perceptions of Islam and Muslims in prison. Um, Despite CT powers now being used against the far right more often, the relationship between the far right and counterterrorism over the last two decades has been more symbiotic then it has been antagonistic. Therefore, we do not consider equalizing tax by targeting non-Muslims more proportionally to their Muslim counterparts to be any kind of solution. If a law is bad, that uh, bad law being applied to others doesn't make that law any better and, uh, and, and this is a really important concept that as muslims it's like you know prevent they try to justify prevent now by saying oh look we stop white kids as well you know we, we're doing referring white children as well well no that doesn't make it right you know that's still wrong and, and this is uh, how they also uh, kind of justify the use of a lot of ct laws as well securitization of uh, policing. Uh, TACT and CT policing has uh, bled into policing and criminal justice more broadly. CT is the laboratory for policing. So basically You know, police officers, they refer to counter-terrorism uh, immediately. They use that law more and more frequently, where there's actually no need. You know, the ordinary policing is almost going out of uh, fashion for them, in particular when it's to do with people who are looking like Muslims, if you like. Um, So moves towards routinely arming police have been made off the back of the terror threat in recent years. Shoot to kill uh, practices have increased, uh, increasingly being deployed against terror suspects. Latest bill, counter-terrorism and sentencing bill, brings uh, things a full circle, will now expand the range of criminal offences which can be considered prosecuted and punished as terrorists or terror related subject to increased sentences and more stringent uh, surveillance. So, you know, someone could be done for fraud, but you know there is a way uh, using this new bill uh, to actually now make that fraud uh, related to uh, terrorism, even though there isn't really uh, the official kind of original prosecution wasn't based on that, and it's something that's bringing brought in afterwards again to uh, make it uh, make the power kind of bigger and and, and a, a wider net, as it were, to kind of. Uh, uh, Hone in on, on on in particular parts of the communities which is uh, which are Muslims, uh, as we know. Uh, impact of CT powers far beyond uh, individuals directly concerned. So media blitz, political spectacle that accompanies arrests, ensures that these are felt throughout British society. Many of you will know, uh, you know, when there's an arrest uh, of a. Uh, white person uh, for anything to do with say terrorism they found bombs and everything else it's not handled the same way There, there's there's almost like you know the media act very impartial and try not to you know jump the gun but if the arrest is made with someone who looks like a muslim or has a muslim sounding name is like you know is guilty uh, and, and and is portrayed in that way and even worse, the entire Muslim community is made to feel that you know it is responsible for that individual's action. and, that, and, and then we have this you know condemnation culture uh, that's, that's, that's kind of brought about in the community. As of 2020, an entire generation of Muslims will have lived their entire lives in the shadow of tact. So in the last 20 years, if, you, if we look at um, teenagers or you know university students now, Many people, they would not have known a reality other than what the reality has been set in the last 20 years. Uh, We will have spent the last decades under permanent suspect status, uh, spent much of their education under the prevent duty, may have gotten accustomed to routine separation for schedule seven stops when traveling abroad, and even have come to accept all of this as normal. Uh, I'm sure some of you have seen uh, the funny video about Schedule 7, you know, going to the airport early and all of that, you know, subconsciously we're accepting all of this as part of our normal life uh, when it shouldn't be at all, not as citizens. Um, I'm gonna just skip, I'm not gonna go into the uh, uh, diagram itself, but just to say only 11% uh, or 11.6% of the terror arrests result in conviction and 49% are released without any charge. Um, So the success rate isn't uh, how they would kind of like to uh, portray it. There's a lot of innocent people. And if you can imagine 49% of the people that are released without charge, their lives are ruined. A lot of people lose their job because they were on the front page of a newspaper or the number one item on BBC News, et cetera. And their face and name has been spread everywhere. And most of the time, the companies that they work for uh, see that as an issue and and fire them. So it it has an issue, but also the stigma that it brings to that family uh, amongst their neighbors or in their community. Uh, These are things that can never be undone. Um, again, if we just have a kind of quick look at uh, the use of uh, tact, uh, the most used powers um, are Section 5, preparation offense, and Section 58, collection offense. Both are pre crime and do not relate to direct violence. As I was saying before, most of the people um, that are being convicted uh, under these legislations is to do with anything but violence. of individuals in prison over CT offences are Muslims, so showing huge disproportionality of how it's being used. Uh, Again, a lot of that is just thought crime. Uh, It's it's just someone had a, a book, someone downloaded something, someone looked at something, all of these things, but it's got nothing to do with violence. Yet, if you were to see the media narratives, if you were to hear... Uh, right-wing people talking, um, you know, you'd think that all of these offences were of uh, violence. So what is CAGE uh, trying to do? Uh, Our recommendations are three, uh, revoke, repair and re-evaluate. Under revoke, we want to repeal all counter-terrorism laws uh, instituted since 2000. Why? Because they are not fit for purpose. Uh, You know, we're we're building more evidence to show this, but this this report is a start. We want to uh, have the uh, immigration secret courts that needs to be abolished, okay? Uh, a, a person, if they're accused of something, they should have the right to see their accuser and see the evidence against them. You know, what is it that they're being accused of so they can defend themselves is that simple. Um, but, you know, we see that that's not the case at the moment and cease use of all close uh, uh, material procedures. Repair. Okay, initiate a public inquiry to review the long-term impact of creating suspect communities. Okay, what has the harm been to in particular, the Muslim community in the last 20 years through these legislations, what harm has it created? How has it affected the psyche of the Muslims and their aspirations and their feelings as citizens? Uh, do they feel equal or do they feel that, you know, they always need to prove themselves? Okay? This needs to be looked at. Initiate a commission for uh, reparative justice for communities unfairly impacted by tact. And to uh, re- uh, re-evaluate, uh, reevaluate, adopt KG's uh, uh, eight-point uh, 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 kind of beyond prevent report for uh, safer uh, societies, uh, conduct a uh, people's inquiry towards building, a, uh, building security and not national uh, security. What, what social security meaning that, you know, look. It shouldn't be security is not based on what the politicians think is important at that time, it should be based on what we as a people think that are important you know what is it that we're looking to be secure from. So that's our recommendation so inshallah, um, we will have the report uh, launching next uh, next week. Um, if you are on our mailing list inshallah you will receive it, uh, you will see it on uh, social media as well. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll stop there for now and uh, if there is. Uh, any questions I'll, I'll take them okay so someone's asking uh, will we get a recording um, uh, inshallah we'll, we'll take a look at it and uh, we'll see if uh, those that have registered uh, we, we may send uh, the recording of that um, okay so is there any questions if there aren't um, what I'd like to do is uh, then introduce uh, Sister Mariam, uh, for her section uh, of the presentation, let me just have a quick look. Okay, so there aren't any questions. Uh, someone's asking what was the figure of 77% uh, so 77% of individuals in prison over CT offences are Muslims and that's uh, as of March 2020. Uh, Ahmed, I hope that was clear. Okay, so um, I'll stop there. There aren't any more questions. So, as I said, uh, brothers and sisters, um, you know, I I obviously whizzed through some of the key findings of our report. um, But, uh, you know, we we really need to understand the impact this has had on uh, us as individuals. Uh, and us as a community. And I think, you know, when you hear Sister Maryam talk about what happened to her brother, um, you'll see the abuse of power, the injustice, the two-tier justice, everything that I was just mentioning, you know, the Islamophobia, all of that, it it will become uh, very, very stark and obvious. Um, And inshallah, at the end, uh, I mean, Brother Mwazim will mention uh, as well uh, some of the things, but we'll, we'll talk about how uh, you guys can get involved and do something. Uh, someone's asking, I'm doing a research for my thesis in America, what can we take from this to, to change policies here? I think, um, I mean, obviously the legal systems in America and, and the UK are, are different, so it's not a, almost like a like for like, um, but it's, it's a very good question. Um, and I think, Uh, One of the things we do need to do is look at, I think in in some things like, for example, entrapment and things like that are pretty normal in in, uh, America, but it's not something that is really accepted here in the UK. uh, When Sister Maryam speaks, uh, you'll see, I mean, your reaction will will be the answer uh, to it. But I think one of the things that we can do with our brothers and sisters abroad um, in America, especially, is perhaps collaborate on understanding so cve is is one of the uh, kind of most harmful aspects uh, of the international kind of uh, ct apparatus and is based on prevent and obviously prevent has been in the uk uh, for a long time so this is an area where we can uh, uh, share more ideas so if you if you do get in touch with us uh, we are um, developing a, a a kind of a group of people to coordinate on CVE. Um, so if you email us um, at um, contact at cage.ngo, uh, inshallah, we will uh, get in touch with you. Okay, so I'm going to ask uh, Sister Maryam uh, if she can uh, now come in. As I mentioned, she's the si- uh, sister of uh, Brother Khubeib Hussain, um, who, uh, you know, suffered from a gross uh, uh, injustice, um, and, and uh, in the media it's kind of been termed the Birmingham Four, but I'll let uh, Sister Mariam explain the case inshallah. Okay, over to you Sister Mariam.
1: Okay, assalamu alaikum everyone, hello. Um, what I would like to do is just touch upon my brother's story um, and how the war on terror has impacted me and my family. Um, I'll start off with his first case. So nine years ago, um, my brother, he was only 19. He was studying law at university. Um, He made the decision at the time to travel to Pakistan to potentially attend a training camp. He at the time felt it was his religious duty and didn't really know what to expect. So he arrived in Pakistan on the 24th of August in 2011. We as a family had no idea where he had gone and the fact that he had even gone abroad, we actually thought he was staying at a mosque. That day and night was extremely difficult for us all. We were all so scared and had the worst fear and kept thinking, is he even alive? My brother and the other three young men who also decided to travel, immediately contacted the families as they regretted the decision. The earliest flight they could get back home was the 27th of August. Hubabe got home and we were extremely happy. It's important for me to highlight at this point that they did return home within three days and Hubei went back to university to study law. The police at the time knew that he was actually going to travel abroad because he was under surveillance, but never once did they come to speak to any of us or any of the family members when we actually feared for his life. A month later, our family home was raided. It was the early hours in the morning. We had never experienced a raid We were not able to go back for a number of days to our home therefore we had to stay with family. When asking the police why they were here they weren't disclosing any information or being cooperative at all. Another month went by and our family home was raided for the second time and at that point my brother was arrested in November 2011. This was two months after arriving from Pakistan. Most of our property was taken and I remember struggling to get back my laptop Um, which I desperately needed to submit my university assignment, which was for my final year at university. The experience of the raids in itself was terrifying for us all, in particular for my younger sisters who were at school and college at the time. The treatment from officers was full of racism. I remember having to call one of the police departments to inform them that they had sent a letter to the wrong address. And in response, the officer felt the need to make a comment to me about the raid, and he said, It's not nice is it when your doors are being kicked down. It's things like that, which I'm unable to forget. My brother for the first time had to experience prison life which was never going to be easy. He was sentenced in April, 2013 to 40 months. We couldn't really understand this decision because he never completed any form of training or committed any physical crime. He returned home within three days the fastest he possibly could. We also know many others who have committed crimes when traveling yet face no punishment. In July, 2013, my brother is finally released, now 21. We were so happy, but he had several licensed conditions to fulfill. He wasn't able to stay at home with his family. He was put in a hostel with a number of strangers. He tried to look for work during this time, but it was a struggle because of his conviction. He eventually was able to stay at my grandparents. However, he was recalled in June 2014 and he requested to stay in prison and complete his full sentence as he knew that the police would constantly keep recalling him for the smallest of matters. He finally comes home in March 2015 and tries to get on with his life. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to go back to universities to study law. Therefore, he got a job via my uncle at a local car showroom. He thought he would not have to see the police again, but he was wrong. They continuously visited our home address, sometimes in the early hours of the morning, knocking loudly just to see what my brother is up to. The visits were not pleasant. The tone in which they spoke to my brother, for example, always belittling him. One of the officers, Deborah Bates, decided to make a strong remark to my brother. We will grow old together, which unfortunately seems to have come true maybe because this was always their plan. In the summer of 2016, my brother started his online job search for jobs such as delivery jobs, which he thought would be easier to obtain given his previous conviction. In July, 2016, he was miraculously offered a courier job with Hero Couriers. He was so happy and messaged me that day he had got the job. He was offered a hundred pound for each delivery. It was cash in hand. There were several times when brother asked his boss, Vincent, about tax implications, but he was never given a straight answer. Hubeb also managed to get our neighbour, Navid Ali, a job at Hero Courier's as they needed more drivers and asked Hubabe if he could recommend anyone. Friday, the 26th of August, 2016. It's a Friday. It's Navid's first shift at Hero Courier's. Around lunchtime, my sister opens the door to police who barge in without a warrant to arrest my brother who was getting ready for Friday prayers and was in the shower. My mom and sister pleaded with the officers to let him put some clothes on before barging into the bathroom. We had no idea what was going on and my brother just looked at the police and said to them in despair, why are you here again? My mom asked my brother, "Habib, what have you done? He said, mom, I've done nothing. Later in the day in Birmingham city centre, the Bomb Disposable Squad were called and the news stories also referenced that arrests had been made in the Spark Hill, Birmingham area. My brother was taken for questioning, which lasted a few weeks. We as a family were still in the dark. He called once and couldn't discuss the case. We and Navid's family searched for Hero Couriers. The phone number was no longer in use and the n- unit where Hero Couriers was based is where the Bomb Disposable Squad were called. Later, the story developed further and we were told that a bag was found in Navid Ali's car, which contained things such as a meat cleaver, partially constructed pipe bomb, shotgun cartridges, air pistol, and so on, a so-called terrorist kit. On the day of Navid's first shift, the same day of the arrest, his boss, Vincent, who we later found out was an undercover officer, persuaded Navi to let him park the car in the unit as otherwise he would get a parking ticket because of the double yellow lines. navi handed his car keys to Vincent without any hesitation on the day of his first shift. The bag, which was found by Vincent, was a multicoloured JD sports bag. There is no evidence to suggest that any of the four men involved in this case, including my brother, purchased any of those items that were found in the bag. They were under surveillance for several months and not one did they purchase anything related to this case or the so-called find. There are no fingerprints of any of the four men on any of the items. There is no DNA. There is no evidence to suggest that they were planning anything in any of their communications to one another. The defence team strongly believe Vincent planted the JD sports bag in Navid's car, where he had around one hour and 40 minutes to himself. This was also the time where he asked another officer to stand down. The nearly five month long trial began in London and was allowed to continue despite several terrorist attacks taking place right at its doorstep in London, which no doubt the jury would be impacted by and would not be able to provide a fair verdict. At one point, the trial was stopped when the defence team requested for phone data of the officers involved and shocking messages were revealed, which proved that the officers were meeting and discussing the evidence throughout the trial, despite being told not, by, not to by the judge, which is then perverting the course of justice. Vincent predicting something would be recovered from the car. A message stating that an Oscar performance will be given when giving evidence in the trial, implying he was lying under oath. The officers admitted they have previously been accused of planting evidence. Vincent himself had a keen interest in shooting shotguns and went to shooting events. In order to have a shotgun, you need a license and the shotgun cartridges found in the bag could easily belong to Vincent. A message showed Vincent had undertaken an internet search and then sent a link to an unknown person. The search and link is to an eight minute film of a person emptying gunpowder from cartridges and bullets and pouring them into another item. This was a link to a person making a rudimentary pipe bomb similar to that found in the JD sports bag. There is so much evidence to prove the innocence of all of the four men. And despite this, they were sentenced to 75 years collectively life imprisonment. We tried to go through the appeals process, but we were rejected. In order to get the case reopened now, we can only go to the CCRC, which unfortunately requires us to have new evidence, which in this case, it's quite difficult when so much evidence already exists, but despite this, we still need something new. We have tried to complain to the IOPC and the Professional Standards Department of the West Midlands Police, but we have continuously been ignored to date or rejected. We've also tried to go to our local MP and raise our concerns, but unfortunately, quite frankly, they have been too scared to support us as this case relates to terrorism. And myself and the other three families continue to fight for justice. Thank you everyone for listening to my brother's story. I hope that's sort of, you know, raised some awareness for everyone who's on this event.
0: Uh, Jazakallah Khair uh, Sister Maryam uh, for that and um, there's actually a, a podcast I'll uh, post the link uh, of the podcast uh, inshallah in the chat um, and uh, I, I would say uh, to brothers and sisters uh, listen to it obviously Sister Mariam just uh, did bullet points um, to cover most of the uh, issues. Um, but when you hear the podcast, you, you, you'll get more in-depth um, uh, kind of report. And actually, the podcast is done by an ex-police uh, officer who used to be a detective. So it's it's, it's nothing. Uh, it's not connected to uh, Mariam, it's not connected to Cage, it's just a, a, an independent person. So it is, uh, and, and they've been doing podcasts about many uh, other issues where they um, have suspected that a grave injustice uh, or a miscarriage of justice has taken place. Um, Okay, so I'm going to, um, if there are any questions, uh, we can take them afterwards. Um, But just to keep things uh, ticking along in a timely manner, I'm going to ask Brother Mwazam, who's here now uh to uh kind of uh, do his presentation and after which uh we can discuss in terms of i think brother muazzam if you can also mention maybe at the end of your presentation uh what people can do to get involved and uh, and and you know uh, things like that and then we'll do a q a as well if there are uh, questions from people so brother muazzam oops
2: Azad for that um Bismillah uh, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wa salatu wa ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man Brothers, sisters, friends, salaamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And again, it's my pleasure and honor to be addressing you here this evening about a very important subject here to us at CAGE, and that is uh, 20 years of anti-terror legislation and what it has meant for us in the community and uh, people in this country in general. Uh, let me first start off by saying that uh, when I listened to Maryam talking about the case of her brother and the Birmingham Four as they're known, um, it's important that we understand the the historical context and links uh, to this because whilst we are talking about 20 years of laws that have been passed that are essentially very damaging to us and have seen people criminalised for essentially thought crimes which I'll be addressing, um, uh, what we've seen in the case of Maryam's brother and the Birmingham Four is uh, a miscarriage of justice. Now there are uh, one or two other cases that uh, come to my mind that are important but this, of all the cases that I've come across in all of the years, and I believe their lawyers and other advocates uh, on their behalf who have been talking about it, would also say the same thing, that the the, the, the role of the police in entrapment, in cover-up, in lies and the miscarriage of justice is, um, I believe, unprecedented in, in anything that we've seen thus far in, in the UK. Perhaps it might resonate with people in America, uh, because in America we know for uh, many hundreds of cases, in fact, there have been of entrapment, literally hundreds of cases um, where FBI sort of sting cases have happened. But it seems unusual here. Um, the resonance is with the Irish community, of course, and particularly in particular with the city of Birmingham, where six people from the Irish community who became known as the Birmingham Six in the 70s uh, uh, and the 80s when the campaign happened uh, were imprisoned for a crime that they didn't commit, where evidence that was exculpatory could have been uh, presented to the court to show essentially that these people couldn't be um, guilty for the crimes of which they were accused of, which was a bombing in Birmingham. And the Guildford Four also uh, the same thing and the famous story of uh, Jerry Connell and uh, and the film made about him um, in the name of the father, which essentially is based on the same thing that police hid exculpatory evidence and also uh, were involved in serious crime Uh, because they wanted to get some kind of a a result in the eyes of the world and the public. Um, And this is is essentially something from the same strand. Now, why that's important is because I did a talk alongside Jerry Conlon many years ago um, at at an event. And Jerry Conlon, as I said, he was somebody who was in prison for 16 years for a crime that he did not commit. He was innocent. Literally, he was set up and um, uh, the cover up was done by the police. When we spoke together at this event, there were hundreds of people present, and in between us was a lawyer. Now, this lawyer is somebody that bridged those two worlds uh, the world of the Irish being accused of terrorism in the 70s and the 80s, and the Muslims being accused of terrorism uh, from the war on terror, terror years onwards. And that, na- that name or that lawyer is Gareth Pierce, who's somebody that's very close to anyone who's been uh, affected by anti terror legislation, who has been. Um, targeted in, in this way and Gareth Pierce represented me even before the war on terror began when I was arrested in, 19, in 2000 um, again by anti-terror police um, the laws hadn't been passed in the way that they had in fact 9-11 hadn't happened um, and the police had raided my home and tried to force me to give passwords and uh, eventually uh, the, the charge that they wanted to give me was supporting terrorism, which was a very, very loose charge. And the charges were dropped. And shortly after that, uh, in the following year, uh, sorry, even in, in that same year, in 2000, the first anti-terror law was passed, um, that we're speaking of, uh, of commemorating 20 years since that. And it's been since that time till now, Um, that anti-terror laws have been passed in the UK, almost at a rate of one a year. And that particular law in 2000 included many, many things that that had prohibited things that in the past were not illegal um, and had given more powers to the police than they'd ever had before. And that was Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000, which during the first couple of years of uh, the passing of this act, it wasn't put into action very much. There weren't many cases, but particularly... Uh, Over the past several years, uh, past five to six years, we have seen uh, thousands, in fact, half a million, uh, according to the last report that we did, uh, of people who were stopped under Schedule 7, that you are 42 times more likely to be stopped under Schedule 7 if you are Asian-looking, whatever that means. One study by um, Cambridge University in 2016 found that uh, 88% of those people stopped at one airport in Britain alone were Muslims. Now, that is a shocking statistic because we are only about four to five percent of the entire population. Uh, if you add to this the plethora of anti-terror legislation, I kid you not when you say when I say that when I returned from Guantanamo on the day that I did in 2005 in January, my lawyer, who at that time again was Gareth Pierce, met with me in Paddington Green Police Station, where I was being held again uh, uh, after being literally arrested on the very airplane that brought me back. Uh, from Guantanamo to uh, to Britain, I was taken to this police cell, uh, police station rather, and then in the police station I was asked questions which was again ridiculous because I'd been in custody by, of the Americans for three years. I didn't know anything other than the torture I'd, I'd uh, witnessed and endured and Gareth Pierce had to rush off, if you believe, can you believe it, uh, straight after meeting with me because uh, a An important decision was being made that very day in the House of Lords and that was that 16 North African and Middle Eastern men who'd been detained without charge or trial under um, emergency legislation in 2001 after 9-11, a decision was being made about them who'd been held in prison in Belmarsh as high security prisoners for three years three years without charge or trial in Britain, the land of habeas corpus and Magna carta. The ruling was by the House of Lords, which was the most uh, senior or the, um, the highest legal body in the land, that the detention or the imprisonment of these men under anti-terror laws was unconstitutional, i.e. it was illegal. The government had acted illegally entertaining these men. Now, because they were foreign, i.e. they were not British citizens, they were North African and Middle Eastern men, They had less rights, and where we heard that before. Um, And as soon as the decision was given for for them to be released, within weeks, a new law was passed. And that new law was another counter-terror legislation which allowed the use of control orders. And control orders, for those of you who don't know, uh, were essentially um, laws that allowed the government to place people under house arrest. In Britain again, not Burma, Britain. And that house arrest uh, had rules around it, where a person would have to wear a tag, whether they would whether uh, they would have to also sign on at a police station several times a week. In some cases, several times a day. Um, In other cases, people were restricted to movement to one or two miles radius around the house. In other cases, there was one uh, I remember he couldn't he wasn't even allowed to go into his garden, let alone to go out into the street. They couldn't have visitors except uh, uh, without them being approved by the Home Office. Those visitors included friends of their children, school friends, they couldn't have access to the internet, meaning the kids couldn't do uh, do their homework, couldn't study properly, couldn't have, uh, uh, you know, access to things like films and so forth, and the list was on and on and on, and it made the life so debilitating and so crushing on the individuals that the kids often would say, I'd rather my father was in prison than I have to live in prison in my own house. And you can imagine that effect on the community and the society and then on those children. And to top it all, I, I want you to bear this in mind, that all of these restrictive practices were placed on these people, though they were not found guilty or charged of any crime. In other words, according to the letter of the law, these individuals are innocent. They have committed no crime. And this is how they were being dealt with. And so this continued in this vein. One of the um, A decision was given by a Uh, terrorism review that even this was so restrictive on people that it uh, uh, amounted to some kind of an oppression. Another thing that happened from within these control orders is that people could be internally exiled. Now when you think of the term exile, again you think you don't associate the term exile, detention without trial, uh, torture, um, miscarriage of justice, you don't associate those words with Britain necessarily unless you have documented the way that we have as, at CAGE uh, these very actions by the British government. That's exactly what we associate, um, what Britain has done in the past 20 years in the name of the war on terrorism. So then uh, there were other laws passed, like for example, the Glorification of Terrorism Act, as, as it's known, where people were literally uh, convicted of crimes of terrorism. I remember terrorism, uh, the, the textbook definition of terrorism is that the use of violence to achieve a political, ideological, or religious um, goal, or aim aim, aim and objective. But what the legislation has seen over the past 20 years is for non-violent crimes, meaning when there is no violence, there's no intention to commit violence and there's no link, there's no uh, causal link uh, to physical violence or act of violence, people are convicted, uh, prosecuted and convicted as terrorists and placed in prison, therefore, as dangerous prisoners and categorized prisoners. Now how that feeds into statistics and telling this the country that we have um, prosecuted this many terrorists, a terrorist, for example, who's, written a, who's published a book uh, that was written uh, in the 8th century or 9th century AD in which there is a chapter about the concept of jihad. And so jihad itself, because now in the public psyche and indeed in, in some courts is described as or alongside terrorism it's very easy to say, well, that's terrorism. So if a person has been involved in jihad, for example, in any number of countries, whereas at the time when Britain itself supported jihad, i.e. they supported the mujahideen who did jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviets, that wasn't terrorism, that was freedom fighting. But now uh, uh, jihad today is seen as terrorism and therefore anybody who's convicted of anything to do with that, whether it's literature or whether it's physical participation or whether it's support or just making a prayer or a Facebook post and so forth is now all under the, the purview of terrorism. And this is what we found in the case of several individuals who were convicted under the Glorification of, of Terrorism Act um, for non-violent crimes. Uh, we found others and more recently, of course, um, Prevent in 2015 was one of the laws that was passed um, under the Counterterrorism and Security Act whereby prevent. Um, Again, this is important that we we look at this from a holistic point of view. Uh, Though the anti-terror legislation that happened uh, in relation to Ireland um, and outside of legislation allowed them to carry out things like internment and uh, juryless trials and all sorts of oppression, you didn't have a series of laws that allowed the conviction of people for writing, say, Republican poetry or songs that celebrated Uh, fighting, defeating and killing British soldiers which still exist in in the lexicon of the um, Irish Republican movement Um, and indeed you won't find for example the PREVENT program in Northern Ireland either and that is because um, PREVENT in in the UK in Britain um, or or mainland Britain whatever you want to call it uh, is uh, essentially a law which allows or puts a duty upon schools, colleges, universities uh, prisons, hospitals and shockingly, if you don't already know, nurseries uh, for uh, nursery attendants, teachers, lecturers and beyond to report to the authorities what they think may be signs of extremism in a child. And of course, you may have heard of multiple cases where that has happened. Um, That doesn't happen in Northern Ireland at the moment. Um, It would upset uh, the peace treaty. It would upset the Good Friday Agreement. It would upset both sides. Uh, And indeed, as we're talking about Brexit and one of the things that is pivotal on the issue of Brexit is maintaining that peace agreement, the peace agreement, the Good Friday Agreement that kept the the warring factions, as it were, uh, apart, kept the armed resistance, uh, stopped the armed resistance and so forth. Um, And one of the trade offs is that you can't call everybody a terrorist, even though those terrorism laws, have been around for quite a while so what's happened in the UK unfortunately is that there hasn't been a strong enough pushback and as a result of that our children have been and our children generally are more likely to be um, referred to prevent than even adults and so the largest group of those who are at risk from prevent or being targeted under prevent are uh, children from the ages of well we've had the, the youngest ones from the age of three all the way to Uh, to young adulthood and to young teenagers and so forth. Um, People refer to Prevent because they're Palestine activists. People refer to Prevent because they mispronounce words. People refer to Prevent because they wear T-shirts in which says, which says, I want to grow up to be like Abu Bakr. And most Muslims know that means Abu Bakr As who is the closest companion of the Prophet, who is the first Khalifa, the first Caliph of Islam. And... uh, also the father-in-law, everybody, every Muslim knows this, but somebody who doesn't say, somebody who's, he may have been, he or she may have been trained to recognize extremism, and to them, uh, Abu Bakr is, or was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of Islamic State, and we've heard of cases where that has actually been a prevent referral. So, uh, if that wasn't bad enough, there's always, we've always found that there are different laws and legislations in the pipeline. that are constantly making reference to the threat of terrorism, um, uh, where some of that may be real and some of that may be perceived. There's nobody doubting, of course, that acts of terrorism have happened in this country, but uh, they happened also at the time at the height of the IRA campaign, and we didn't have laws like this. And in fact, if there's anything that ended that um, whole process, it was a, a process of dialogue, negotiation, understanding, listening to those people who you don't like to listen to, and understanding that laws are not the way forward wars are not the way forward dialogue and understanding and listening to those who who you find palatable is the way forward Um, we found laws for example counter-terrorism and border security act which was passed a couple of years ago again found will find people guilty find themselves um if they're under this law guilty of of terrorism not because of what you did not because of what you planned to do or assisted somebody else in doing, it's because of where you physically were in the world. So if you happen to be in a particular part of the world that has been designated by the government of the day, which itself has many different political alliances and views that change over time, uh, you could find yourself uh, as an aid worker, as a journalist, as a, um, even a participant in, in the conflict, um, being targeted as a terrorist, somebody who wants to use violence to change a political um, reality. And of course, while we're on the subject, how many times has Britain itself as a nation taken part in violence in order to change a political reality, in order to uh, further a political goal? Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, you you can give a big list, Libya, Syria. Um, So one definition um, clearly doesn't fit all. So, inshallah, I'm going to stop there. I mean, I could say enough about my own personal experience of being targeted, and it is, perhaps I could say this bit, is that anti-terror laws and measures have been used uh, on many, many people, not just to put them away in prison. Perhaps that may not be possible in many cases. It's happened to me a few times, even though I've never been charged or convicted of a crime, and that says a lot about anti-terror laws, whether America or Britain, that I've been in prisons in both places. But what's more disturbing is this uh, notion or this technique, rather, used by the government to disrupt, so closing your bank accounts. Now, the government's not directly responsible for the closure of bank accounts, but what they do is uh, they will allow for this information or the disinformation to be spread, whereby your name goes into this uh, 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 place, this database, uh, which essentially says that you're a terrorist and the banks don't want to bank with you because of the secret information that's passed around that's um and you have no recourse so your accounts can get closed and it's, as it happened to myself and to cage and many other people know multiple times that's one method to, to really disrupt the people so that they can't function as human beings let alone as organizations um by allah's grace the no the harder they try it with us um and it is a great it is actually a miraculous phenomenon the harder they do that with us the stronger our, our fundraising becomes and the stronger the more support we get from the public and that is uh, purely down to the, 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 the favour of Allah and then your support. Other tactics used, passport seizure, pa- uh, nationality rec- revocation, temporary exclusion orders that stop people coming back into the country. Mm-hmm. We've seen this happen several times, uh, even with aid workers in Syria, as you may know the case of Tokir Sharif, and others who've had their nationalities revoked, um, because they're in Syria helping people and working in situations where they have to interact with all different groups, including those um, who are are proscribed in one way or the other. Uh, And so their their nationalities are revoked. In other cases, we we are aware of at least um, 150 odd cases. And again, this tells you something, which is really important that you you see this, that your nationality can only be revoked if you have the right, not that you actually have, but you have the right to another nationality so you can uh, you can see the statistics show that the majority overwhelming majority of those who've had their nationalities revoked are people of asian and african descent um and are there uh, people who are white who are convicted white british who are convicted of being uh, terrorists far-right terrorist uh, groups and so forth answer is yes many have they had their nationalities revoked no so you can see uh, the, the the disparity here um As I said, inshallah, I think I'm going to come to a close there. There's a lot more to say in in relation to 20 years of anti-terror legislation. The next most important thing is what can you do about it? There aren't many organizations out there who are doing or talking about this or highlighting in the way that we are. If you haven't read Cage's report on tact of uh, 20 years of anti-terror legislation, I suggest that you do so. Uh, But more importantly than that, spread the word. Uh, Cage prides itself on the work that it does because it's not only is it cutting edge our reports and based on evidence and based on research and based on uh first source first-hand experience primary source experience and knowledge uh, but also we are willing to take those steps that very few in fact none are, to, are prepared to do and that is to stand up raise our heads above the parapet and uh, speak the word of truth as the prophet alayhi salatu wasalam, said after jihad haq, and the sultan in jair So you can support us, you can take part in our programs, you can volunteer for us, you can um, arrange events in this difficult time of coronavirus, we're doing them all online, but nonetheless, that is another medium in which we can become even more widespread than just locally, we can uh, reach out to people around the world. So, inshallah, I'm going to stop there, uh, and thank you for for taking part, and if there are any questions, keep them to yourself, because I'm going home.
0: Jazakallah khair, yes. Uh, keep your questions to yourself, because uh, Mwazim needs to get back to Birmingham. No, I'm just joking.
2: I'm just joking. <laughs> fire away,
0: fire away. Um, no, Jazakallah khair for that, uh, Um So, brothers and sisters, if you do have any questions, um, alhamdulillah, we're doing uh, good for time. So uh, it's 8 o'clock, so it's just the, an hour, so we've got about 25 minutes uh, if, if there is a need. If there's any questions, please do post your questions in the Q&A. Um, uh, You you can ask about the cases uh, that Mariam talked about, or if it's to do with our report, or just generally uh, what Maazam has been discussing. um, Please feel free. Um, Okay, so... uh, Okay, I thought that was a question. No, there's not a question. Okay. Okay, so question, uh, did uh, Sister Mariam's um, brother appeal uh, the pr- uh, prosecution? Uh, Sister Mariam, if you unmute yourself, um, and perhaps you can answer that question.
1: Yes, um, we did. Um, we, we got to get in front of three judges, but unfortunately, they weren't having it. Um, the defence team were trying to basically say that the undercover officers to date remain anonymous. So how can we investigate them? Um, but because so much evidence was held in secret um yeah and and just the nature of the case i just think we weren't going to get any support unfortunately okay. uh,
2: and can, can I just add to this sorry can you hear me
0: yeah okay.
2: yeah can i just add to this i mean it, it, this is important um it, it, this is to do with climate the climate in which we ex- in which we exist today so there's a height this is all these convictions took place at a very heightened time of climate where climate when uh, Manchester bombings and so forth were taking place and uh, and beyond so how do these people get to hear uh, judges who are not affected by that and in the end if you weigh up if you were to look at it and this is probably what the police would actually argue who are you going to listen to who are you going to believe police officers are a bunch of convicted terrorists you know simply that's how they present it and unfortunately it seems to me that they would rather be safe than sorry in this regard and it, it takes a level of bravery, even from the judiciary, who sometimes do, in some cases they do overturn um, such, it's not uh, beyond the realm of possibility, but it's about climate, and I believe that the climate will change at some point, and we, CAGE, is involved in trying to change that climate.
0: Um, okay, um, question about when the report will be available. Inshallah, we plan to uh, make the report available on Monday. Um, So, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you are on our mailing list, uh, you should be able to get a copy. It will be on our website as well and on our social media uh, as well, so inshallah, um, uh, Monday. In terms of the question about the status of the case uh, to do with um, uh, the Birmingham Four, I mean, basically the appeal stage has been uh, frustrated um, and and, and it's gone beyond that. And I think it's just to pick up on what Muazzam said is about creating the context where you can raise this, and I think, look, you know, we've got to look at previous miscarriages of justice, like the uh, Guildford Four or the Birmingham Six, etc. It took many, many years, and I think this is one thing that's important. Uh, Sister Miriam's not giving up. Uh, we at Cage are not giving up. Um, I really implore brothers and sisters to actually uh, make a note of the link uh, that uh, Mariam has posted in the chat and listen to the podcast. Um, And inshallah, uh, we we will uh, come to you uh, with with some uh, help and uh, suggestions on what we can do next. But it is something that is doable. I think it's really important for us to have that uh, uh, hope uh, and, and that positivity that it isn't lost uh, and we're not going to sit by and allow an innocent person to be, uh, you know, treated in this way and, and spend the rest of their life in jail. Um, so, Yeah,
2: and also to add to this, remember, I mean, just it, it, the podcast is very important, as Azad said, Mariam said, that it's really important. that, that uh, And once you've listened to it, take, out, take those little bullet points out and remember that there's no forensics that links any of these guys with anything they're accused of. There's no photogra- photographic evidence. There's no video evidence. There, there, there is no DNA. There's nothing in fact, because there is nothing because they weren't uh, doing what they were accused of and they weren't there when they were accused of, of doing that stuff and other people did it. And those other people, unfortunately, I am fully convinced as as lawyers that I've spoken to that it was the police who did it. So the culprits in this, uh, if, if there are any, uh, are unfortunately those who have been vested with the duty to protect us and what they've done is in the name of protecting us. They've said, well, who cares? Let's put these guys away um, and nobody will bat an eyelid. And if you would look at the shocking detail of the discussions that took place in court about the the messages that were read out in court between these police officers, uh, some of who were told not to communicate with one another. The fact that one of the jurors fell in love with one of the officers and she still remained on the jury. All of these things, one by one by one are so shocking that you cannot believe that this took place uh, in in a couple of years ago here. And I do urge everybody to look at this because it was the case of Jerry Conlon that eventually after 16 years, he also lost his appeals, but somebody believed in him. And that same lawyer who believed in him then is the same lawyer who believes in these guys now. And I fully trust her uh, about this. And once that, that, that thing clicks with somebody, with people of, of, um, of influence, I believe that we will uh, eventually get justice.
0: Um, a question for sister mariam uh, in terms of uh the response that your family uh, and and the other three that were involved in this case in terms of uh moral support from the community and neighbors uh how was it um you know w- was it positive or as we uh, see uh, you know there's ostracization and distancing from the community
1: i think when when the event happened so when the case was actually discovered you know the bomb disposable squad were called and so on we as a family actually had no knowledge of the case now in true style of solicitors and barristers we were told that we'll find out about the case so the case for the family it developed very slowly so we didn't know that hero couriers was a undercover operation we didn't know that this was all a setup about the bag you know we found that out as they were being questioned, and we were getting information in drips and drab. Um, Initially, you know, I'm not going to lie, probably some members of the community thought, you know what, three out of the four men have previously been convicted, this is probably them. However, now having all of the evidence and the story, you know, coming to light, so if you listen to the podcast, for example, that would explore on it further, um, the community actually support us. Um, especially, you know, friends and family who know the case. Um, I know shocking details of the case. It's evident that these four men have been, um, unfortunately, entrapped. So I think initially there was probably some hesitation from some of the community, but now that we're fully aware of the case, we fully believe it's a case of entrapment.
0: Okay. jazakallah uh, khair. Sorry, uh, um, there's a question here about Schedule 7. I'm going to post the link uh, that you can go to about Schedule 7 and inshallah we've done many know your rights workshops about Schedule 7 uh, and uh, hopefully you can uh, join that. Uh, Question perhaps, Muazzam, you can uh, answer this. Uh, The question is saying clearly the establishment is against Islam. The question is why, what aspects of uh, Islam uh, do they uh, fear?
2: That's you know, a very good question, and uh, it's not exclusive to Britain. In fact, but I'd still say, despite all of this, Britain's probably one of the best places to be as a Muslim, and that's saying something bearing in mind what we've just told you. Um, Islamophobia in general is, is not only on the rise, it is here to stay. It's in the communist uh, government of China doing it uh, to the Uighurs in prison en masse in detention camps, concentration camps, it's in the United States of America. Uh, where there are as i said multiple entrapment cases where it's the, the head of the war on terrorism which essentially is uh, targeting muslim countries around the world it's in 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 india with the hindutva and the rise of the uh, uh, the far right in india and hindu extremism it's uh it's in burma it's in it's everywhere and they're all using the same language they're all calling muslims terrorists it's an easy cop out to challenge or to uh, Dismantle those people who want to stand up for their rights. A Muslim standing up for their rights is uh, is now is now more. You see, it's more common. And the moment you can see this with dictatorships around the world is that they will. The moment that somebody does that, they call them terrorists. Whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood, whether it's uh, whichever group it is, I've seen you know Tablighi Jamaat, which is like a completely non-political, apolitical organization, being described in Western press. Um, as a conduit to terrorism. So there, and there are people who actually say that Islam is uh, synonymous with terrorism. Um, so we're onto it, we're onto them now, and they know it. So uh, this simply, it, it's, it's for us, it's kind of kind of birth pangs. It's important it happens to us, that we, we have to go through this. It tests our faith and it tests our ability to be able to face the world in which we come in. And that will mean prison, that will mean uh, being targeted, it will mean not being on the front page of the Daily Mail, I mean your accounts being closed. And uh, we know that this is the the, the test of those who went before us who struggled for a cause um, and stood up for it. I'm not saying that everything is oppressive about Britain or everything is oppressive about uh, America, far from it. But what is oppressive, we've seen it and we've documented some of it for you to see in our report.
0: Okay, uh, Jazakumullah Khair, I think um, we don't have any more questions, so uh, brothers and sisters, we'll, we'll wrap up. I think I'll just quickly uh, read out what Brother Hakgani, uh actually put on there. Um, I don't know if everyone's seen it, but he's saying, how can any community live with itself, uh, res- with self-respect, not doing anything whilst this sort of oppression goes on? I feel ashamed to know what's been going on yet carry on, uh, we carry on enjoying our lives. I feel the community needs education of its responsibility towards local uh, people that are oppressed as well as uh, global uh, oppressed. And I think look, this is uh, a a sentiment that many of us do feel that, you know, uh, while we ignoring it. Uh, Some maybe are, but I think, you know, there is also uh, the need for people, as you said, education. A lot of people are aware of the injustices that are taking place, but they just don't know what to do. And I think that's why it's important. I hope, brothers and sisters, you know, you pass the message on. If people come to uh, our website or uh, join our mailing list and everything else or come to our events, inshallah, uh, we aim to actually bring that about, that education of first understanding what uh, the war on terror and all of this stuff is doing. But secondly, most importantly, what can we really do about it? So inshallah, on that note, uh, I'd like to thank Sister Mariam uh, for giving us her time and, and of course, Brother Mazum, Uh Good to have you in London, Akhi. Um, <laughs> even though <laughs> I, you, I... No, you wouldn't to, know it. <laughs> uh, though you wouldn't know it, yes. Uh, jazakallah khair uh, for your time as well. And, of course, Jazakumullah khair, brothers and sisters, for your time. And we'll finish there, inshallah. Subhanaka bihamdika, ashadu la ilaha illa anta, wa alaykum, everyone. Alaikum
2: Asalaam.